Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized positions in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former CMO of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com. Here with my guest today, Kip Knight. Full disclosure, Kip and I started at P&G in brand management back in the Pleostein era, and this is his second time on the show. Welcome back, Kip. Mike, a pleasure to be here. Kip has had a number of roles in a variety of companies. Among them, he was the CMO of Taco Bell, the president of H&R Block's retail business, and he's also the founder of CMO Coaches, which he currently oversees. He's also a twice-published author, having penned Learn to Leap and Crafting Persuasion. Now, today, we're going to try something a little different and switch things up a bit. We're going to have a discussion about marketing and finance, with the topic being what, why CMOs should learn to speak finance, the universal language of business. Kip is going to lead this discussion as this is a class uh, I teach at Kip's CMO Bootcamp. So Kip, the microphone is yours. Let's get started and see how this new format works. Well, thanks, Mike. And, and like I've told you before, I, I think you've had you know so much experience on, on this topic that um, I, I would like to have a little bit of a tennis match and go back and forth and we can ask each other some questions on this. But the the, the starting point that I'd like to make is that, you know, and, and we've said this on some previous uh, podcasts, CMOs have the shortest tenure of any of the C roles out there. Uh, for perspective, it's about 18 months, uh, the median for a CMO. CFOs are five years, CEOs are seven years. Um, and uh, the primary reason CMOs get fired is because they have a lack of alignment between themselves and the CEO. Now, the odds are very, very strong that your CEO is a former CFO. And marketers um, <laughs> better learn the language of finance because CFOs do not have to learn the language of marketing. And, and that's the theme of today's uh, discussion. And what I'd like to do is to maybe throw it back to you, Mike, and, and talk about some of the um, challenges you've seen for marketers that don't really understand the language of finance and uh, just jump right into what are some of the proactive ways that you think marketers can make sure they don't fall into this trap? So so first I will say the universal language of business is finance. It's not marketing. It's not anything else. And when you think about your investors or your board or Wall Street or anyone else, whether it's private equity, VC, or uh, public companies, that the universal language that everyone understands is finance. And the leader of that communication to the street and to the investors is always the CFO. The CEO has a role to play, but the CFO is the driver of all those communications. So one of the things I would encourage marketers to do is understand that language and translate for the CFO. Uh, because that to me is, is super important. And, and actually it's what investors and, and people care about the most is, is, is that kind, those kind of results. So, so I always encourage people to, to think 
like a CFO and and help the CFO do his or her job because his or her job is not really to do anything with marketing other than coordinate it and then forecast sales and profit. Hey, Mike, let me let me jump into that a little bit and and when you understand the CFO. I mean, one one thing that kind of amazes me is marketers is supposed to be really good at understanding other targets and and how they're thinking and feeling. And yet I, I'm not sure a lot of marketers can envision walking a mile in the CFO shoes. And, and I think it might be worth just kind of comparing and contrasting what a CFO has got to deal with compared to a CMO, because I, I, I agree with you. I think step one is just understanding where are they coming from? And, and to get started on that, maybe we can think about, you know, your, your typical CFO has gone up through a fairly traditional non-changing curriculum uh, during their career, whereas uh, CMOs, I, I call it choose your own adventure. I mean, uh, I don't think I've met a CMO that has had the same career path as anybody else. They, they all are very different. And so when they when they actually get to the top spot for finance and for marketing, just making sure they understand the roles of each other and the dependencies of each other is, is where some of the miscommunication can start. So you, you got any thoughts on that? I do. And I, I think the burden on this is really on the CMO more than the CFO. Absolutely. And, and I, I also think, look, you and I probably benefited from having general manager roles in our career where suddenly if you realize, gosh, a whole bunch of people are going to get paid on how much money I make the company and I'm going to be evaluated off this. You have a tendency to to think a lot more like a CFO than just a pure marketer. Mm-hmm. But And so my thing about walking in the shoes of, of the CFO is think think what the CFO has to do. And, and you call them stations of the cross, but they have to do all the forecasting for the company. They have to keep track of everything. They are by nature always wanting to have spare profit and sales running around right because the last thing they want to do and they are usually the mouthpiece to the street uh, and, and i mean wall street or, and or the investors and they're the first line of explanation as to why things are going badly they also mm-hmm. have audit and uh they also are involved in mergers and acquisitions and tax and payments and everything else so the idea that they're going to be deeply deeply involved in marketing in anything but it being a line item that they have to report on is probably a bit of a reach unless they are a super CFO, which if you get one of those, you're lucky. So so I think one of the things I would be thinking about as a CMO is how can I help the CFO do his or her job? And a lot of that is by translating marketing into things that the CFO's target market can understand. And what the target market doesn't care about is a lot of the numbers that the marketer does care about, like brand awareness, consideration, all kinds of tracking like this. They care mostly about sales and profit. And so I'd encourage CMOs to think that way and have a marketplace scorecard that shows that. Yeah, I agree. And I don't I don't want I don't want to stereotype too much, but in 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 almost every company I can think of, if you were having the CFO come up from central casting and the director was telling them, well, what's What's my personality? It's going to be, you know, some would say a pessimist, some would say a realist, but it's certainly not an optimist. I, I, I don't think I've ever met an optimistic CFO simply because they have to be a pessimist. They have to always be thinking about the downside. And and yet marketers, and I think that's just the nature of the bees, we've got to be optimistic because 
who's going to want to follow a marketer that, you know, is like, well, we're probably not going to do it this year, but you know, <laughs> here's my thing. Marketing is the offense of the company. Yes. But, but, and, and so you have to be optimistic and you have to be willing to take some risks, but yeah. you have to understand that the, the CFO, it's not an asymmetrical thing for the CFO. A downslide is much worse than an upside. Absolutely. And so if you're the CFO, explain to your investors why the stock is getting hammered or why you're going to reduce the dividend or why you're missing sales is a lot less. It it, it hurts a lot more than saying, well, we beat our, our sales goal by an extra 3%. Right. So, so by definition, they are managing, at least in my mind, an asymmetrical risk because, you know, and the, let's face it, if you beat the plan by 3% or 5% or 7%, you don't get proportionally more kudos. You do get punished <laughs> more for missing the plan. So by hey, definition, hey, you yeah. have an offense, an offensive player or mindset in the marketer and a, a by definition, kind of a, a little more defensive player in, in the CFO. And that's, that's by design. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and if going back to your point about, you know, communicating and aligning with the CFO, um, where marketers get in trouble is they skip that part and it's all upside and it's all going to be great. And, you know, don't worry about anything. We got this and all that. And, and that's why marketers, frankly, I think have a bit of a credibility issue because they're always talking about the upside. You would have a heck of a lot more credibility with your CFO, your CEO on the board, if you took, frankly, a lot of their concerns into consideration for everything that you're talking about. So you've got more of a balanced assessment. Uh, you know, you've got to, you have to be the optimist. You have to be the one holding the, the candle in the darkness. But if you're all Pollyannish and you're not acknowledging what, you know, what, what they're telling you, that is where a lot of, I think, CFOs and CEOs start to think, I'm not sure this person gets it. And I'm not sure I want them on my team if they're going to be that naive as to what we're up against. Well, here's where I draw the line. There's a big difference between a promise and a trend. Yeah. I don't make promises if they're not coming off of a trend. Right. And and one of the things is a trend I can project and a CFO can project that trend with me. Right. A promise is a bet that a defensive minded player shouldn't want to take. And, and so my thing is when I am talking to boards and I'm working with my CFOs, I'm thinking, I'm going to talk about the trend and then I can project that trend out. And then maybe I can alter the angle of that trend, but I I'm probably not going to do that unless I have math that is changing the trend, but I'm not going to ask the company to bet a lot on a promise. I have to have either test results that say that promise is a worthy bet Right. Or a trend line that says, yes, if I feed this trend line, it will grow. Um, and I think where a lot of marketers get hung up and, and surely early in my career, I, I, I had this happen to me is I see the opportunity and I'll make the promise. But I won't understand what it's like to miss that promise from the CFO seat. Right. And I also if you're the CFO and you allow promises to come in from every function, what you have is an awful lot of promises and no real trend. Right. And that's where, as a CFO, your job is to not let a bunch of promises hang out. And, and credibility and political capital with your board is the most precious asset that a CEO has. And once they've spent that, then they're going to start wondering about their own job security. Because the next time they come back and give an update to the board, 
the board member can't help but think in the back of the mind, wait a minute, didn't you say last time? And you know, look what happened. Well, let's say, what's the company really trying to do? It's got all this money and it's going to spend that money. And in turn, it's supposed to produce better sales and better profit. The marketer, at least in, in a lot of the jobs that, that you and I have been in, has a big portion of that money. The obligation right. to spend that money in a way the company gets what it wants, which is sales, profits, and stability over time, that's sales overnight, brand over time yeah. kind of thing, is why they give you the money. And they don't give you the money to make a bunch of bets that may or may not pay off. They give you the money because they expect that to happen. Right. Communicating in that kind of fashion to your CFO and then to your board and your CEO, I think is super important. And also, you know, why they give you the money. And and I don't expect a lot of one of the things I advise CMOs to think of is you don't you don't want a lot of kudos from your board or your CFO or CEO. The biggest kudo they can give you is give you the money and let you do what you think is right with it. Right. Right. Well, Mike, a lot of what you're talking about is uh, you're assuming a strong partnership with your CFO. So let's talk a little bit about how you've created some of those partnerships in the past. One thing I can tell you is I think the role of um, educating the CFO privately before you get in the middle of a crisis is absolutely important because um, if, if it's really getting ugly, uh, people are going to tend to go back, back into their silo and really go focus solely on what their job is. Well, why don't you talk about some of the ways in which you've, you've had strong relationships with CFOs and how that paid off for you? Yeah, uh, a couple of things I would say first. I, I guess it makes sense to talk about the marketing CFO first and then the relationship with the CFO, the company second, if that works for you. Yeah, I love this. Okay. So I have, uh, you know, starting when I went to Best Buy, I created a job called the marketing CFO, which is someone from the finance group and usually a staff underneath that person that sits in, on the marketing team. And their job is to coordinate all the money and to make sure that the team is measuring that even handedly and fairly. I don't want each function measuring its own stuff and saying how great it is. I, the job of all those functions and marketing is the least homogeneous function in the company is to produce the best ROI possible for the company today and tomorrow and to strike the right balance between today and tomorrow. The marketing CFO's job is to watch that money, help measure that money in terms of how it's doing, keep a foot in the CFO of the company's camp so they know what's happening and they're explaining the measures, but also bring back the pressures on the CFO and the company financials back to the marketing team. So uh, I'll have the, like the marketing CFO will come in and and say, look, two quarters out, we're looking, it's going to be tougher. We're going to want to we're going to want to be thinking of more sales here, or we're going to have extra money potentially here. Think about how you want to spend it because you don't want to be whipsawing, the you don't want the company financials whipsawing the marketing department because the timings are wrong. So so I've always had a marketing CFO do that, and by the way, that is a super cool job because you get to see. Just about every single thing in marketing, a lot of contracts, sometimes sponsorship deals and all kinds of things. And you're right in the middle of a lot of strategy and consumer stuff. So, so that's the marketing CFO. I think that I always want uh, a relationship personally for me and as many of my lead team as I can with the CFO. And I want to, you know, I want to understand what the CFO is seeing and then we want to have a meeting of the minds on what I'm trying to do and what he or she is trying to do. And so that we are, are 
bonded together on it. And when we take a big risk, one of those offensive risks I talked about, mm-hmm. we are in it together versus I take the risk and then I call up the, the CFO and go, hey, I took this big risk and I just lost a lot of money. And um, I want I really want you to tell the board about that. Um, and, and I can give you some good stories about that if you like. So, um, well, let me let me ask. Uh, we'll come back to that one. But the. Two tricks out of your playbook. Well, tricks is probably not the right word. Two two tested techniques out of your playbook. Tricks, yeah, because they're not yes. Hard. Number number one, I, I know that you always work with the CFO to hold something back so that when the inevitable phone call comes, hey Mike, we got to cut the budget. You're not, you know, you're not in as much trouble as if you spend every nickel. Uh, and the other is your 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 testing pipeline. So why don't you talk briefly about those two techniques? Because you you can use those two techniques whether or not your organization can afford a marketing CFO. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. The first, I call it brand available. I think it's lifted right out of our Proctor days, which is Mm -hmm. I'll I'll try and have 2% of the money that we are sitting on and not allocated. Because if you give marketers all this money, what they would do is they will allocate every single cent and plan for perfection. And then what happens is partway through the first quarter, usually or Q2, Somebody goes, oh, my God, we're not going to make the numbers. Everyone has to return uh, like X percent of the budget. Right. Now we have to go back and rip apart every perfectly planned marketing thing. Mm-hmm. No, the brand available is sitting there in case that happens. So I don't have to mess up the marketing planning. If we are beating our numbers, that 2% becomes available for the best new idea. Right. Um, and that 2% is in addition to our basic testing pipeline. It's mm-hmm. it's standalone money that we're going to use as a buffer. Um, and it's super hard to get this established the first time you do it because everyone wants to take that 2%. But once you mm-hmm. establish it, it really works. And then the second thing I try and build in all the time is what I'm going to call a, a four-box grid. Long-term tools we know that we are funding. Short-term tools we know like performance marketing that we are funding. And then long-term tools that we are testing and short-term tools that we are testing. And I'll have that four-box grid. And on the right side of that testing grid, we'll try and test as many things as possible with the least amount of money and time to prove that they work so we can put them into next year's plan. Back to my, if I have a trend line that I've proved in testing, I can bring it into next year's plan and get funding for it. If hey, I don't hey, have my, my reality check, I'll give you my percentage, but of all the things you tested, what percentage actually made it out of the test and you expanded? Oh, gosh, maybe I think you probably have to test. I think it's maybe 10 to 20 percent, maybe 25 percent of the things that make it out of test. But, right. but but also, I think the thing is, is the team really testing real things or not? And I will I will break out the general a b testing you can run that forever and that's not a right. special thing right real testing would be like we're going to test a loyalty program like uh ebay bucks or best buy reward zone right and that's going to take a year of testing that's that's going to be really long we're mm-hmm. going to test some maybe a media heavy up or or different blendings of media that's that's going to take really long um i like the team to have thought through why they think that will work and then, so we don't have, I'm going to call it a wild card testing. We have, we're solving problems and we think, we think we have enough information that this has at least a 50 to 60% chance of making it through. Right. Well, now, I know you and I strongly believe in the value of testing. I know that we, when we both led marketing organizations, we, we put a lot of effort behind that, but I think it's really important to 
educate your management as to what the philosophy and expectations are behind that testing. Because if you don't do that, you're potentially going to come back and go, hey, guess what? You know, eight out of 10 of these fail. And they're going to think, what do we waste all that money for? And, and the whole point is, yeah, but the two that worked are going to be the things that we can bet big time on. And one other thing I'm pretty confident you'll agree with is that even on the stuff that failed, you learn something. You learn something very valuable that you can apply to the next test. So what are your thoughts on that? So, so I have this thing. Before we do the test, we fill out the grid because there's a lot of things you can't measure. But we fill out the grid. We don't put any numbers on it, but we, we put the measures we're going to care about. So that uh, what I don't want to do is run the test and then decide on the measures, because then I think everyone will try and keep that test alive because they poured a bunch of emotion into it. No, we're going to put the measures, we're going to put the grid up and then the numbers are going to populate as they populate. Right. And then if that, if it is not working in general, we're going to shoot that test mm-hmm. because we do not want to be lose our own objectivity rule. If there is some countervailing reason, we better be able to explain it to the marketing CFO in the way the marketing CFO says, yes, you should keep spending money because I think this is possible. And if we can't explain it to the marketing CFO who's living with us, the rest of the company is never going to accept it and we will shoot it. Right. And and so that's how I think about the testing. But I, I try not to let testing go to market if we have not decided on the grid. Mm-hmm. And then also, depending on what you're testing, you can share that grid and the objective with the company so they can ride along with you right. um, on it. That Sometimes either things are so proprietary or so edgy, you don't want to share them with the company. But in general, I think it's mostly helpful if you can share it with the company saying, we're trying to solve this problem. We're going to test 10 things this year. Here they are. Here's the grids. We'll keep you posted as they come in. By the way, we only expect two or three of these to get out of it, but we're not testing them for this year. We're testing them for next year's plan. Yeah, real life examples are always helpful for people to understand what you're talking about. Uh, One of my favorite ones that you've got is when you tested the uh, loyalty program at Best Buy, and and that was a bit of a roller coaster ride. I mean, ultimately the good guys won, but why don't you walk your listeners through what what you experienced and what you learned from that? So uh, when I was at Best Buy, we were watching what I'm going to call we were, we were losing certain elements of our sales, like printer ink at the time, CDs and DVDs to some of the big mass merchants. And we decided we would create the first loyalty program, I, th- I think in retail. And that was Best Buy Reward Zone. We tested this for a long time. And we we built it as a defensive loyalty program, which was we're going to reward you as fast as possible and give you a $5 coupon and then you're going to come back and that $5 would turn into at least $7.50 in sales. And you would come back in our mind more times. We didn't want to gum up any of the operations or any of the checkout or any of the actual redeeming components. So we tested it in Los Angeles just on music and movies for a couple of months till we were convinced it was going to work and we had a trend line and that it would not gum up any of the operations that we could issue the coupons that come in. At the time, you know, we had our best guess that this would attach to maybe 10% of sales at the most. And we're going to turn this on for everything in the store. And and not everybody was loving the idea. Some of, some people in sales weren't that crazy about it. They weren't sure it was going to work. People were nervous about it. 
the trend line though was really good. We expanded this nationally. We made a big mistake. We did not predict the upside that this thing created. Mm-hmm. I got a call from the uh, CIO, Mark Gordon, who had helped put this all together. He was in Boston at the time. He calls me up. He goes, Mike, we're running out of cards. This is day two of the national launch. <laughs> and, and 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 this has been a bitter fight to get it all the way through. He goes, we're running off cards. I'm air freighting these across the country to all the stores because we're uh, running off cards because it's attaching to 25% of sales. Mm-hmm. I think well, first, my first thought is I'm an idiot for not ordering more cards because the carrying cost on cards is essentially zero. Mm-hmm. So that's job one. The second thing I do is I walk down to the CFO, Darren Jackson's office and say, hey, you probably want to get get me an audit committee because this is going to hit the balance sheet like a ton of bricks um, because these are all accrued liabilities and they're going to pay out longer. But, you know, the 60 day window is going to push them a little bit. Because Darren was, I think, a fantastic CFO and went on to be the CEO of another company. And he had been in this the whole time. He helped me get this through audit and hung with it. And then a year later, when we had actually run a giant paired test of people with the card and without the card, with the exact same purchase histories, we found that this was driving a tremendous amount of sales and profits, and we could actually share it with the street. But it was, <laughs> yes, it, it was a good learning for me. And I, I, I didn't even think about the possibility of running out of cards. And, and we, we never stress tested the upside. So. Yeah, I love, that, I love that story for a couple of reasons. First, it, it shows the value of testing something and then, you know, going for it. I mean, and, and if anything you've learned, you, you need to look at both the upsides and the downsides if you're playing in a rollout. But more important, I think it's a really good illustration of the value of trust between you and the CFO, because uh, I think in too many instances, there is either a, a, a level of mistrust or there is just a disconnection between the CMO and the CFO and the fact that you immediately knew that you needed to get proactive and get in front of this and have the CFO of your ally made all the difference between you being a hero and somebody starting to say, well, I'm not sure Mike is really the guy for this job. To be clear, Kip, I was not a hero that first quarter. (laughs) This thing showed up on the balance sheet because we had this argument when we're going through capital committee to expand it where Everyone's like, there's no, some people were saying, there's no way you're going to do 10% of sales. And the team is like, we, you know, we're only promising seven. And if we don't do seven, we'll all quit basically. Right. right. uh, We're certain it's going to do at least seven. So we put it in, we got cards and everything for 10. We're ready. And then this thing just blew up. And, um, but, you know, we had studied the effect on the the balance sheet (laughs) and the the liabilities this was going to build up. And yeah. How long were you CMO at Best Buy, Mike? Almost eight years. Okay, so I think it all worked out. It all worked out, yes. (laughs) And luckily, I had some wins under my belt by then. And also, the the CFO and I would do a, for a a couple of years, we would do, every quarter, we would do a discussion with the board of what's going on with the financials and what's going on in the marketplace. And I felt uh, uh, completely in lockstep with him. and And I think he was obviously a great CFO. Yeah. Well, Mike, I, I know we're, we're starting to run out of time. Let, let's maybe do one other uh, quick topic. And that's one that a number of CMOs can relate to. And that is, what if your numbers are going the wrong direction? And, you know, you've got an unhappy CFO, you've got an unhappy board, and the CEO is starting to 
you know, drop some hints about, you know, how long you've worked here and don't count today. So you know, what, what, what's your advice when, when the numbers just aren't going your way from the marketing front? How should you manage that? Well, at first, I think uh, I always try and do what the company needs first. And sometimes the company needs you to help make the quarter. Mm-hmm. I also think sometimes, gosh, you're just going to have a, you know, you're, you're in a place where you, you may not win. Mm-hmm. And and you have to recognize the difference between you're having a bad stretch and you may not win. And and or they may need actually another player. And and I think I, I try and be as crisp uh, uh, on the numbers part. I try and do what the company needs. And then I try and explain to the company, what's that going to cost them? Because usually it's sales overnight, brand over time. And the pressure is right. we need a lot more sales today. And we'll sacrifice the brand over time for that. And I think that is a totally reasonable thing for the company to do, but it has to it has to know what it's giving up. Right. And I, I think my job is to tell them that. The other thing is, you know, I, I don't know that there's really good advice for when it's going bad, other than you can be as transparent as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that is really hard because what that means is you may say, I, I'm going to cut a lot of the marketing money, and I think this is going to hurt us next year. Um, and also maybe you don't want to stay in that job for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah, Mike, I, I would agree. Transparency is important, but also, and you've illustrated this with your Best Buy example, being proactive. So in other words, don't wait for the CFO to come to you. I, I think you've got to be proactive in going to the CFO and saying, look, the way I'm reading the tea leaves, we are in trouble. And I know we're probably going to need to cut. And I've already started to think about some contingency plans. Because ideally, when when you're in trouble, if you can go to the CEO as a partnership and say, okay, boss, here's the game plan and we're united on this, that is going to go a heck of a lot better than unfortunately the way it does where the CEO and the CFO kind of disappear in the back room and they come out and they have the tablets from Mount Sinai. They say, here's your new number. And wait a minute. (laughs) Well, and I will say this is where the marketing CFO is really a helpful position. Right. Right. Because one of the things that at least uh, in all my marketing CFOs, and I've always, I, that was a position I, 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 I put it in at, at, at Best Buy, gosh, long, longer ago than I care to admit. And I've always had it. Um, and we have a show on that on where we're actually going to talk to a marketing CFO coming up um, where the marketing CFO is really at every staff meeting, we are going over the financials and the financial trend lines. Mm-hmm. So, and we're looking out at at least, you know, a current plus six a month. Uh, that would be, we're looking at the current math and then what six months out looks like. So we're not shocked if things are going sideways. Right. And then we are also having a discussion with the marketing CFO about, hey, what might go sideways on the financial front that we should be watching? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times there isn't that much. And sometimes there's an awful lot, you know, depending right. on what you're in. Retail sales for holiday can be an awful lot of your year mm-hmm. and and figuring out how the marketplace is and where you're going to go. And that's where the marketing CFO to me has been instrumental at keeping the team from being surprised by those tablets from, uh, you know, on high. Yeah. Hey, Mike, um, one, one last question for you, and then I know we'll have to wrap it up. So I've been in situations, I'm sure you have too, where your board wants to be extremely helpful to the marketing you know, leader and give them all kind of uh, help 
on what they should and should not be doing. So again, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are facing that situation or they're going to face it. So how do you manage a board when it comes to, you know, the financials and the marketing spend, especially if the numbers are, are heading south? So I, I do a couple things. One, I, I will listen to everybody, but I'm not turning over my decision rights, surely not to the board and surely not to my peer group. Um, I, though, will present always to the board and to the peer group what I call a mark, a marketplace scorecard mm-hmm. versus a marketing scorecard. And that, to me, is is our translation layer, which is, look, we're going to talk about sales, total ROI on marketing, market share, ideally if we have it profit or margin, and then uh, retention. Because I think retention is a super important thing for everybody mm-hmm. we're looking at, especially if you're in a high acquisition cost business. Uh, we'll try and talk that way. And then if we are losing particularly market share or sales or profit, we'll try and understand why that is happening versus to be talking about, oh my gosh, we got to fix CAC or or whatever. You know, we gotta we gotta get more efficient because. Often when you're losing, it's not efficiency that's driving the losing. It's a marketplace problem. Mm-hmm. I'll try and have the discussion about the marketplace problem. Um, and that is, I think, your challenge as a CMO and a lead team is to see the marketplace problem clearly and not think it is just the easiest thing you can see. And, and an example of that is a lot of people think, oh, our price is too high. We'll just drop the price. Everything will be fixed. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. And if you're wrong... You're degrading margin at speed, or we just need to do more performance marketing. Maybe, but maybe those customers aren't available. And I think you have to understand the why before you do the the what. And a lot of times, I, I and my whole goal is to prevent the company and the board from immediately going to what are we going to do to fix this problem? To why does this problem exist? Right. And right. if we can agree on it, then we can debate issues. A lot of times, that's and that's way easier said than done. But that's what I try and do. And right. sometimes it works. <laughs> yeah, and, and one other thing to appreciate is that the CEO is in a really tough spot because the board is his boss, his or her boss. Yeah. And uh, it's a real test of the partnership that the CMO has with the CEO when you're under that kind of pressure because the CEO at some point can decide to switch teams. And ideally, you don't want to have that happen in the middle of a board meeting. I've seen that happen. So. Well, and one of the easiest things, as we know, yeah. to to think you're going to fix the problem is to just say, change the marketing and tell consumers to buy more stuff or to pay right. more. Right. And if if only it were that easy, but a lot of times that's the easiest default for, for an awful lot of situations. Yeah, I agree. So Gus, I, I think Kip, we're out of time. Thank you, Kip, for being an MC. And thanks everyone to listening for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple. And this includes what venture capital really thinks about marketing. You can listen to one of Kip's uh, earlier shows, which is Why the Short Shelf Life of CMOs, Part 1. And we have Part 2 coming up as well. And then is the CMO position headed for extinction? So thank you, Kip. And hey, all you marketers, be safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. This episode of CMO Confidential is produced and sponsored by Adcom, one of the premier integrated marketing and advertising agencies. Adcom works with mid-market companies to create measurable returns. With 30 plus years experience, 
Adcom partners to lead innovative strategy, creative, media, and analytics for growth-oriented brands that want to differentiate themselves in a crowded field. Working in B2B, B2C, healthcare, financial services, transportation, building products, and consumer goods, Adcom leverages unique internal and external insights to create dynamic and lasting brands ready to maximize their market position. For more information, visit us at engageadcom.com. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership Podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain. 